שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשירס. כל רמה, 102.3 FM. everybody, welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk, the best Torah talk in Dutchess County, New York. I am your host, Rabbi Barry Chesler of the Schachter School of Long Island. And with me today in the studio is Jessica Fisher, entering her fifth year of rabbinical school at our flagship, the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, and Gabe Cohen, entering his third year of rabbinical school. Pinchas is one of the great Parshiot, which is something we like to say about each and all of them. But what we're saying today, because it actually fits in with some of the themes that might encounter rabbinical students as they are making their transition to fully vested rabbis in the community. But before we get to that, we have the second half of the curious incident of the what's called by Jacob Milgram, the apostasy of Baal Peor. Last week, we found an Israelite chieftain having sex with a Midianite woman in a uh, semi-public place, but certainly an inappropriate place, and they met their end when Pinchas, in order to uh, avenge God or be jealous on God's account, manages to stab both of them. We pick up today or, with a parsha with God speaking to Moshe, saying that Pinchas did a good thing. The rabbis have a mixed message about Pinchas. Part of that is revealed in the fact that they split the Torah reading between Balak and Pinchas. So we get the actual murder or killing. It could be seen as a judicial execution, perhaps, in last week. And this week, we get the reward, the covenant of peace. So Jessica, you seem to be perturbed by this act of violence. Perhaps you could comment on it. Sure. I. Um just feel uncomfortable in general with the idea of rewarding violent behavior. Um, it seems clear that the text feels that the couple was in the wrong for their behavior that we read about the week before. Um, but to give Pinchas the opportunity to be a priest forever um, and to say that we're going to favor him and his descendants because of his act of violence um, seems like a not, not appropriate response to his killing of this couple. And also perhaps there could be, have been a different punishment or enacted in a different way rather than hastened zealotry. Gabe? I actually think this response feels kind of in line with what I would have expected. Um, you know, kind of this Israelite people above all. Um, he killed those who were, weren't even Israelites or Jewish and seems kind of like he's rewarded in kind. Um, yeah, I see that, of course, the problematic nature of rewarding someone who's killed someone, but this to me doesn't feel like it's out of sync with what I've come to know. So we've had the idea of God being a jealous God in other parts. It's part of the Ten Commandments. Um, how does that resonate with you? You're in rabbinical school. You're soon to be rabbis. Does a jealous God have a place in modern Jewish theology? One of the things that I think I've been struggling with a lot personally as a Jew and also as a growing Jewish leader is 
the role of particularism in general and this idea of the Jewish people's special relationship with God. And I think the flip side of that or the connected issue of that is this idea of God being jealous or not jealous of our wholehearted attention. Um, and I think it's a challenge that I'm grappling with as a person. And also I think um, a way that we can kind of connect to God and a way into God and thinking about how we treat God might be similar to the way that we might interact with people around us. So following upon this incident, we have a census. The census will lead us to the story of the daughters of Slovchad, the note Slovchad. Perhaps you could describe for us what happens. Sure. Um, the daughters of Slovchad are five women whose father dies. Their father, like the other men um, of the Israelite people, is given a grant of land in the, in the land of Israel when they're going to get there. And, um, but their father dies before they make it into the land, which means that they are essentially left homeless um, because the system is not set up for women to inherit land from their fathers and they are not married women. So they do not have land attached to their husbands. Um, so these women take it upon themselves to go to Moses in front of all the people and demand that they too be given uh, land, their father, the land that had been designed, designated for their father. Um, and then Moses goes and consults God and determines that they should, in fact, inherit the land that their father was set to inherit. So Gabe, what do you think we're to make of this? Is this something that the Torah just has not dealt with previously? Is, is Moshe showing that perhaps he does not have all the answers, or perhaps even God, suggests a suggestion that God does not have all the answers for all time, but that we have to find a way to access God throughout the generations? Well, I think we talked about this um what is, this, what is this model of leadership? Moses consulting with God. Um, do, it seems clear that Moses doesn't have all the answers and that he's going straight to God who seems to give him a pretty definitive answer. Um, well, do we have similar access to God today? Where are we supposed to go for the answers? Uh, aside from this radio program, of course, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we have that guidance. We, we are somewhat in the dark. Um, if only there was some all-knowing being we could go to with all, with all those questions. Just about. I, I assume that we're not thinking that Rabbi Linden is the all-knowing being, even for Camp Ramah. But is there a person, perhaps, that you look up to, that you regard as your authority, that is your go-to person for the kinds of questions that might confront you when you enter the rabbinate as rabbis? Well, of course, we have our, our modern-day rabbis, um, but I don't think they're occupying the same place that God does. To, to suggest that, mm -hmm. oh, maybe, maybe you could suggest that, but um, I think we're just going based on the text and what we know and what we see. As I'm entering my final year of rabbinical school, one of the things that I've been reflecting on is how grateful I am for the teachers that have come into my life in surprising ways who have become mentors to me. Um, before I came to rabbinical school, I had a few rabbis throughout my life and also teachers and people who um, I trusted for advice and guidance in different ways, but now I feel like I have a really rich well of people to draw on from all different kinds of careers and paths um, to help me in different ways. I don't know that those are going to serve me in the same function that maybe God served for Moshe in moments like this when he was faced with a difficult decision, but I do feel like I have people that I can turn to that help guide me. So as we wind our way through the book of the Midbar, Sefer Midbar, the book of Numbers, the children of Israel's journey is coming to an end. They're going to be entering the promised land soon under new leadership. 
um, not necessarily new and improved, but certainly new leadership. And in our parsha this week, Moshe is going to appoint Joshua to take his place. And it's a point in episode which we had the opportunity to discuss, to discuss with a scholar in residence, Dr. Jason Rokoff, earlier in the week. Moshe is going to place his hands on Joshua and invest him with authority that presumably comes not only from Moshe but from God as well. The Rambam, Maimonides, in his Code of Jewish Law, suggests that this laying on of the hands is the only time physical smicha took place, and that in the generations after Joshua, only one became a rabbi or a judge through oral declaration, that the candidate would appear before a panel of three, one of whom had been previously ordained, and they would say, you are now a rabbi, you are now a judge. So as you wind your way through rabbinical school, how do you look upon your own rabbinic authority? Where do you think it comes from, and what do you hope to promote in the wider Jewish community? Gabe, why don't we start with you? Actually, one of the questions I've been most asked the most in my two years of rabbinical school is not, not along the lines of, you're a rabbi now, what's the answer to this question? But the question is more, do you get the question a lot that now that you're a rabbinical student, do people think of you as a rabbi? And frankly, I'm only two years in on a five-year journey. I haven't actually been referred to that much as rabbi yet. Um, I think jokingly people are going to start more and more. I remember when my own brother was just a rabbinical student, and the first time he got called up to a bima as Rabbi Cohen, my whole family just started cracking up um, because that was just my brother. He's not a rabbi. Um, and I, I, th I think as I'm going through this journey, I see a lot of that same thing for myself. It's going to be hard for me to get used to that title. Um, again, another three years to get to that point, but it's, it's even weird to just say this out loud. Along a similar lines of, of family joking, when I was admitted into rabbinical school, my youngest brother wrote me a theme song to the tune of the Pokemon theme song. Uh, that was Rob Jess, Gotta Teach Em All. Um, and at that even that made me feel kind of nervous. Um, but something that somebody said to me as I was beginning the process of applying to rabbinical school was that part of the reason it's a five-year journey is that it takes time for you as an individual to feel like you have the authority and the presence of being a rabbi. Um, and part of it's not just about gaining knowledge and experience, but it's about growing into it for yourself. So I'm looking forward to having more opportunities to grow into this role and sense of authority for myself in the year to come. Um, and also to learning more after I finish. Well, speaking as an experienced rabbi, it could also be five years so that you get used to the idea that you don't have all the authority that you want and that you will leave wishing that you knew a lot more than you did and that you have to be satisfied with what you know when you go out into the field. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have any memories of the first time you uh, realized you were really a rabbi or, or story? Um, I actually haven't thought about it in some time, but it does take some getting used to. And um, I ended up after rabbinical school in a friendly congregation on the South Shore of Long Island. It was very small and mostly elderly. And I, I think I, I fit in well enough. Um, but of course, they were always glad to tell me when I uh, <laughs> did not represent myself as well as they might have liked. Um, but that's the, the nature of the business. If we can move along, this Parsha is perhaps the one that's read most from in the course of the year because 
We have chapters 28 and 29, which detail the sacrifices. This is where the mafter for each of the Shalosh Rigalim and Rosh Chodesh come from. And we have a couple of features about the holidays that seem worthy of conversation. One is the curious phrase of the Rosh Chodesh offering being Chatal Adonai. Literally, we might say a sin offering for God. And the rabbis ask a question, is it possible that the sin offering is offered on God's behalf, as if he sinned? So we remember the story from the creation on the fourth day when God creates the two great lights, the moon and the sun. There's no indication there about the relative size. And the idea is, at least in the rabbinic imagination, that originally the sun and moon were created equally. The moon suggested that it was not possible for two, uh, two great lights to rule equally the sun and the night, uh, the day and the night. And therefore God, in a fit of peak, decides to make the moon smaller. And the moon comes back with this idea that the question that the moon asked was actually a legitimate question. And therefore the resolution was that God would have B'nai Israel offer a sin offering on God's behalf each new moon when the moon is beginning to get larger again as a way of appeasing the moon. This idea is reflected in the reading of the El Adon, which we sing every Shabbat morning, where it says that God saw and fixed the, uh, the shape of the moon, but it could also be read that God made the moon smaller. So this idea that a God could possibly make mistakes does that, how does that fit in with your own personal theology? For me, it actually feels pretty consistent with my personal theology. Um, there's a lot of things in the world that are certainly not the way that I would like them to be. Um, and I have a hard time believing in a God who would allow those things to happen with intention. And so for me, the idea that God might make mistakes um, feels like actually somewhat comforting, both because it makes God more relatable instead of being this massive, omnipresent, om omnipotent, Force, but also because maybe it means there are some things in the world that aren't actually the way that they should be, and maybe they could be differently if something were to change. Um, I also think, you know, something that resonates with me is that every, every person being made in the image of God, and every person in, on earth has certainly made mistakes, and that's very fitting. We're, we're made in the image of God who maybe does make mistakes. Um, we're, nobody's perfect, maybe not even God. So if we can come back to our conversation at the beginning of the program when we talked about God being a jealous God, are there attributes or characteristics of God that we think perhaps are evidence of mistakes? Certainly when we feel jealous or zealous, we don't hold that up as behavior that we should emulate. Is this story with Pentecost getting the covenant of peace perhaps an example of God not acting as God should? but perhaps, if we might say, more human than divine. One of the com interesting conversations that I've had this summer with a few different campers has actually been, why do we sing Shirat Hayam, Az Yashir Moshe, every morning? Um, because it feels uncomfortable to them to celebrate this moment of God being so violent and destructive. Right, and there we have the image of God as Ishmael Hamad, the man of war. Right, and so perhaps that, to me, feels like, it feels consistent with this conversation that we're having now of, a jealous God, a God who makes mistakes, 
And a violent God also is perhaps something that maybe is, is problematic, but also something that we have to struggle with since we do have that imagery. And I think this does come back to the beginning of our conversation. Azur Shir is about God's sensational, you know, killing of those who try sought to oppress us. Um, in the beginning of the Parsha, we talked about a God who clearly favored Jews and killed those who weren't Jewish and, sorry, rewarded the killing of those who weren't Jewish. Um, again, this just seems consistent with the vision of God. So, as we both know, prayer at camp is always an interesting idea. Um, perhaps more in theory than in actual practice, but do these images of God, or how do these images of God being jealous or zealous affect the way that we attempt to pray, both as ourselves, but also as leaders who attempt to help campers find a place in the prayer community as well? Um, one of, as part of my role this summer as Rosh Tefillah, one of my goals is to help campers find entryways into Tefillot. And I think, as you acknowledge, it's a challenge and a struggle. Um, and I don't think we're going to find the right answer for all of our campers, for all of the prayers. Um, but perhaps the idea that there is something, some piece that can resonate with them um, and open something up for them, allow them to connect a little bit more deeply with our tradition, allow them to connect with traditional language or traditional choreography and body movements or melodies, um, I think is, has the opportunity to be really powerful and a good opening into future engagement with prayer and liturgy as they grow older. And I also do think it's, it's important for people to struggle with prayer. And if it was all the good stuff, it, you know, it wouldn't be, there wouldn't be much to it. Um, it's important to read the things that maybe we disagree with and see how we shape our Judaism based on that. So do those things actually pose difficulties for you when you pray, or are those things that you skip over? It absolutely poses difficulties for me when I pray. It depends how good the tune is. Well, that is always interesting at camp, where sometimes the voice is, is uh, shall we say, unconsciously dissonant. But moving along, another aspect of the holidays has to do with the holiday of Sukkot, where the main sacrifice is... There are 70 sacrifices that are offered in the course of a seven-day holiday, beginning with 13 on the first day, going down to seven on the seventh day. And then at Shemini Atzeret, there is one, one sacrifice that is offered. And the rabbis note that the number 70 is connected with the nations of the world. At least in their mind, there are 70 nations, glossing over, of course, the beginning of the Book of Esther, where there are apparently 127. And so, therefore, Sukkot for them was actually a universal holiday is referenced in the Elenu at the end when we quote Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, that we hope that on Sukkot, God will become one, and his name will be one, and that's part of our messianic hope, as it were. But Shemini Yatzeret, as it were, was a day just for Jews. So we have this conflict between universalism and particularism. Do we think of the Torah as something that just belongs for Jews, belongs to Jews, or is the Torah for everyone, and how is it that we as rabbis communicate that to the larger world? Um, I think there are certainly aspects of the Torah that are feel like they're just for Jews, um, but I also think it's such a obviously foundational text that to do that is, is dangerous, and, and it's just promoting the particularism we were talking about before. I, I also think that there are ways in which the Torah, while, while it is a Jewish language in its own internal reference, um, also has opportunities to connect 
with other traditions and other faiths, we have similar universal themes, even though we also have particularism within it. So we're at this part of the program where we're just about to say goodbye. I'd like to thank both of you. It was important to take note that this Shabbat is the first of the three weeks of of punishment that uh, stretch from the 17th of Tammuz, which we observed this past Sunday, and we'll conclude two weeks from Sunday with our observance of Tisha B'Av on the 10th of Av. The Haftarah for this week is the first chapter of Jeremiah, which uh, Jeremiah, of course, is described as perhaps the greatest prophet after Moses. So we're at a summer camp. We're involved in planning and participating in activities which have to do with promoting joy of mitzvah, joy of Torah, and just overall joy to be with a lot of different kids of different ages with boundless enthusiasm. How do we present, or how do we think about these three weeks, which are going to be the last three weeks of camp, as it turns out, because Tisha B'Av is the last Sunday of camp. How do we combine the notion of Simcha with the Jewish calendar, which is taking a, a darker, somber note at this time? Well, I think it's, a, it's definitely a challenge in terms of the programming of the everyday, but one of the things that I'm thinking about as we start planning for Tisha B'Av, which is the concluding part of this three-week period, um, is how we can straddle both destruction and regrowth in a way that feels um, like a sensitive acknowledgement of what the themes of this of this period are about. Um, so one of the things that we're hoping to do is uh, open up our Gemiza and bury some of the books that we have here in camp that need to be buried because they're no longer usable. Um, but on that same at the same time, while our campers are burying these books, we want to also have them plant flowers so that we have both the feeling of taking care of our sacred uh, books and and re- recognizing destruction and recognizing that sometimes things are no longer usable, but also that we can grow and plant for the future. That was beautiful. Um, yeah, I think just try, trying to find a way to balance uh, our sorrow with our with our joy. Um, I think some of the sorrow may be caused by the meals in the chadar during the nine days. Um, so tr- just trying to trying to keep those things in perspective and uh, enjoying the rest of the summer to the best of our abilities. So I'd like to thank both of you for participating. I am Rabbi. Yes. Yeah, pleasure. I am Rabbi Barry Chesler with Jessica Fisher and Gabe Cohn. You've been listening to another edition of Parsha Talk on W uh, on 102.3 FM in the Camp Ramada Berkshire's vicinity, or as a podcast on www.coramah.us. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.